0: Welcome. My name is Amanda, and this is True Crime's Psycho Soup. Hello, everyone. Thank you a million times over for making your way back here. And if it's your first time listening, welcome. I must warn you, though, you really did pick a whirlwind of an episode to start with. Creating a true crime podcast has always been a dream of mine. My brother actually purchased me a microphone during COVID, but I never had the guts to actually do it. But with your support and all of the feedback you've given me thus far, you truly are making my dream a reality. All I wanted to do was spread awareness to the cases that may be forgotten or the cases that are still wide open. And let's face it, I could put out a ton of episodes, but without you here to listen to them, Psychosoup would be nothing. With over 600 listens in a month of starting this podcast, I am absolutely blown away and so, so grateful for each and every one of you. If you're a fan of the content I've been publishing, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a few seconds to leave the show a review or a rating. I'd like to spread awareness to this case specifically, as far and as wide as possible. In this episode, the despicable monster is familiar with two provinces, Ontario and Saskatchewan. Someone has some answers. But like I said, this case is a doozy, and we have quite a bit to unpack here, so let's get started. The early 80s was a completely different time than what it is today. Supervision was seldom, parents rarely knew where their kids were, especially in the summertime. I'm sure if you're a parent like me, you couldn't imagine allowing your 9-year-old to go to the park alone in today's day and age. But that's just how things were in the 80s. Neighborhoods didn't seem as dangerous back then. We played outside until the streetlights came on. In fact, if we were lazing around the house or complaining that we were bored, we would surely be told to go outside and play and not return until dinner time. But this was a rarity, because back then, kids wanted to be outside, and you always knew exactly where to find your friends because you'd simply look for the pile of bikes at the end of someone's boulevard. Before the time of cell phones and internet, and besides hanging out at a friend's house, the streets and parks are where kids found their friends and played together, especially at parks like Jean Sybilis Square. A small park on kendall avenue in toronto completely surrounded by mature trees and what are now multi-million dollar homes this is a park that looks safe with so many people and houses around what could ever go wrong here this particular park is smack dab in the middle of four major roads in toronto bloor bathurst spadina and dupont just blocks away from what is today's busiest parts of the city if you're not familiar with these particular streets in Toronto, it's very close to the Royal Ontario Museum, the University of Toronto, Koreatown, and Little Italy. This mind-blowing case revolves around a young girl named Sharon Morningstar Keenan. Sharon was born on July 3rd in 1973. She was a nine-year-old fourth grader at Jesse Ketchum Public School. The school is located in Yorkville, a quick seven-minute drive from Jean Sybilis Square. Sharon had long, dark brown hair, brown eyes, and a dimple on her right cheek that you could see so clearly when she smiled. Sharon had two younger siblings, a seven-year-old sister named Celeste and a five-year-old brother named Summer Sky. In my research for this case, I saw a few reports that Summer Sky legally changed his name later in life. Sharon's parents were 35-year-old Linda Keenan and Brendan Karen. I've only ever seen the ages of the parents written that way, so I would assume that Linda and Brendan are the same age. Brendan owned a family business in the food dehydrating industry. In a commercial for her father's dehydrators that was aired in 1980, you're able to see the only recorded moving footage of Sharon that was ever to exist. It's approximately 30 frames of 16mm film. So, in other words, it's less than 3 seconds long. She's shown in this short moving clip, wearing a pretty brimmed hat, a lace sleeve dress, and a watch, lifting a forkful of spaghetti off her plate. Sharon most enjoyed drawing pictures and spending time with her friends at the local park on weekends. Linda describes Sharon's drawings as examples of Sharon speaking for herself. She never liked it when other people spoke for her. It actually embarrassed her. Sharon liked having her own voice. On Sunday, January 23, 1982, at 3.30pm, Sharon and her mother Linda are walking home after visiting a friend's house just up the road, passing Jean Sybilis Square on their way. Sharon asks if she can stop and play. Sharon's mother hesitates, but eventually agrees to letting Sharon stop there, with a request that the nine-year-olds be home no later than four o'clock. Sharon wore a watch, as you'll remember from the commercial for her father's family business, and she was able to tell time. She was normally very punctual when asked to be home at a certain time. Linda described the weather that afternoon as being mildly temperatured, wet, and foggy. She does mention that it had been raining earlier in the day, but had since stopped. As 4 p.m. rolls around, there is no sign of Sharon, and Linda becomes worried. It was starting to get darker outside, and this was unlike Sharon. Brendan reassures Linda, suggesting Sharon must have lost track of time and is still goofing around with her friends, so he throws on his coat and goes off to the park to investigate. When he arrives at the park, Sharon was not there. Brendan headed back home after about 10 minutes, hoping that Sharon had found her way in the time that he was gone. When learning Sharon was still not home, He left the house again to search more of the neighborhood. As he yelled out for Sharon and asked bystanders if they had seen her, he made no progress in finding his daughter. A few people at the park had seen Sharon early in the day, but they weren't sure where she ended up. It's now 6.15pm. With no sign of Sharon and no ideas of where she could have gone, Linda calls the police to report her daughter missing. Sharon was last seen wearing a skirt, a white blouse, and a long brown coat. As the police searched the dark park area with flashlights, they were unable to find any signs of Little Sharon. By 10pm, a missing person's report circulated and sound trucks made their way around the area, announcing details of the missing girl in hopes of finding her safe and sound. The following day, Linda agrees to take part in a radio interview with CFNY, which if you live in the greater Toronto area, you'll know this still very popular radio station that has been renamed 102.1 The Edge. During the radio broadcast, Linda calmly explains to the Toronto community and to anyone who's listening that she is sure that Sharon is still out there, alive and strong. She actually pleads with the public in asking them not to despair and that she believes her daughter will be home soon. One day later, two homicide detectives are assigned to the case. They canvass the neighborhood, going from door to door with a photo of Sharon. They ask residents if they've seen the young girl or if they'd witnessed any suspicious people around the area. One statement from a witness who was at the park at the same time as Sharon would be the police's only lead to go on. Police would learn that Sharon was witness talking to and then later leaving the park with an older man who was smoking a cigarette earlier on the day that Sharon was last seen. This witness would later be publicly named as Doug Bapti. This new lead has police change gears as they begin conducting door-to-door searches of all of the homes in the area. Six days after Linda's radio pleaded the public, and among hundreds of homes the police have already searched, they arrive at a rooming house located at 482 Brunswick Avenue, a mere 100 meters from the park Sharon was last seen playing at. The man who answers the door to the rooming house doesn't appear to speak English, but welcomes investigators inside. As they make their way into the house, they question the other residents there. A man who lived on the third level of the rooming house, named Ollie Luchaniak, at first pretends he's not home. Likely to avoid questioning. He makes his way down the rooming house stairs and stands a good 10 feet away from the investigating officer, Constable Brian Laurie, as Laurie tries to show Ollie Sharon's photo. Laurie asks him who else lived in the building. He replies, "Mm, There's a guy that lives downstairs. When detectives ask him if he's home, Ollie replies, No. They ask Ollie if he knows when the resident would return again. He replies, No. Finally, detectives ask when the last time Ollie saw this man was and he states, eight days ago. Not about a week ago, or not that he wasn't sure, but eight days specifically. It turns out that the resident on the second floor was actually Ollie's drinking buddy, who he names as Michael Burns. It is widely speculated that Ollie's statements and mannerisms made it seem like he was being secretive and possibly had something to hide. It's rumored that at the time, an immigrant family was living on the main floor of the same rooming house, The family allegedly didn't speak English and claimed not to be aware that there was a little girl missing, possibly because of their language barrier. One of these family members could have also been the individual who allows police into the rooming house that day. When the family was given a translator to better communicate with police, they claimed that on the night in question, they heard commotion, thumping around, and screaming in the unit above theirs. They explained to investigators that they assumed that there was a domestic dispute occurring and they didn't want to get involved. It's also rumored that the immigrant family may have been in the country illegally, explaining why they may not have reported what they heard that night. This housing unit, directly above his family, was rented by Michael Burns. If it weren't for the odd actions and answers from Ollie, police say they aren't even sure they would have searched the unit. It's not known whether police even had a search warrant to search Michael Burns' room. However, they conducted the search in the unit on the second floor that he was renting on that very day. Upon entry, detectives observe an ashtray on the table, and beside it, strangely finished cigarette butts all lined up, standing on their end, side by side in a vertical pattern. The unit is described as vacant, although after looking at photos of the unit during the initial search, leads me to describe otherwise. The photos show pieces of furniture such as a chair, a side table, and a lamp, a calendar, and some cassette tapes on a desk a dark brown four-dresser drawer with two bottles on top of it, a black garbage bag on the floor in what looks to be like a doorway of a closet, and two loaves of bread and maybe a jar of jam on shelves right next to a refrigerator. I would be describing this apartment more of abandoned, not vacant. Constable Brian Laurie, once a seasoned police officer in the UK and now in Canada, was one of the officers to search the unit inside of the rooming house. The second was Detective Mike Pedley. As they were searching the apartment, Laurie noticed a green bag with a small piece of what looked like a white shirt sticking out of the refrigerator door. He tried to open the door, but it was jammed stuck. He pulled harder with one last pry and thought to himself, why in the world would someone put their laundry in the fridge? And with that last tug on the door, Sharon's remains would be visible. That the white shirt Laurie thought he saw was actually the blouse that Sharon was last seen wearing on the afternoon she went missing. Sharon's body was inside of the green garbage bag, in the fridge. Detective Pedley was standing in the doorway of the unit when Brian said, Mike, she's in the fridge. Brian recalls that Pedley didn't hear him, or at the very least he didn't comprehend what Brian was telling him. There is a photo of retired detective Wayne Oldman, later searching the contents of that garbage bag that lay in the closet doorway, In one of the photos, he's pictured pulling Sharon's long coat out of the bag. Laurie finds one thing about his entire discovery quite particular. He vividly remembers Sharon's hair looking very shiny when he found her. He wasn't sure if it was from the light or some other unknown reason. It's just a detail that he's unable to forget. Could her hair have been wet before she was put in the fridge? And if the information that the alleged immigrated family shared with police that day was factual, these are absolutely harrowing details. The sound of a domestic dispute, along with screams coming from upstairs. This could very well indicate that Sharon fought for her life until the very end. Ten days after the discovery of Sharon's body, Constable Brian Laurie says this was one crime scene too many. He leaves the police force to open a successful traffic court representation firm and sadly, his close friend and co-worker, whom he describes as the sensitive officer, Detective Mike Pedley, would later commit suicide. Now, this bit of information isn't reported in the easily acquired articles online depicting this case, but if you do some digging, it is reported that Sharon's body was frozen, and it took days for her body to thaw in order to even begin conducting an autopsy. The autopsy results show that the murderer used his hands to strangle her, and that there's also evidence that nine-year-old Sharon was sexually assaulted. Foreign DNA was retrieved from Sharon's body. Regional coroner Dr. James Young said that it was impossible to tell how long Sharon had been dead or how long she'd been in the refrigerator. Is it possible that a fridge can be set low enough to a temperature that could freeze a body? Or was Sharon originally in a freezer and later transported to the fridge in this man's housing unit? Maybe these are one of the events that Ollie witnessed and was being so evasive about. The suspect they were looking for was last seen wearing a black waist-length nylon windbreaker, grey pants, and a white pattern dress shirt. At this point, detectives are pretty convinced that Michael Burns is an alias, and they'd conduct over 20 hours of searching his housing unit to find any clues as to where he may have gone or something that further proves his identity. And as it turns out, a whole month later, detectives are able to prove that Michael Burns was in fact not legally Michael Burns. He was actually 43-year-old Dennis Melvin Howe. They discovered that the social insurance number that Dennis had been using at the time belonged to a man from Saskatchewan and was earlier stolen from Regina. It was also discovered that Dennis Howe applied for a birth certificate under the name Wayne Edward King. There are records that Dennis has also used his mother's maiden name at a homeless shelter in Toronto. A warrant for first-degree murder is immediately issued after learning this new information there is extreme speculation that this case was mishandled. It's hard to understand, with fingerprints in the housing unit, DNA on Sharon's body, and likely DNA on the cigarette butts left behind, that it took an entire month to identify this perpetrator whose DNA and fingerprints seem to already be in the database. Police put out 10,000 photos in March of 1983 depicting Dennis. They were blasted in the media, on bus shelters, billboards, and posters. But the photo that was released received extreme public backlash. The public was furious that this particular photo that was circulating of Dennis seemed to look significantly different to what he looked like at the time of the murder. He was at least 20 pounds lighter, and it was speculated that it was just not a good representation of what he looked like at the time. Backlash was also formed, as rumor had it that police allegedly claimed that on the night that Sharon went missing, they were too cold and too tired to bring the search dogs out on the scene. If this allegation is true, I find it absurd. Do you remember how Linda described the weather that particular day? Wet and foggy, but definitely mild. Get this. Dennis Howe is described as five 5'9", 165 pounds, with brown eyes. He has a half-inch scar under the left side of his chin, crooked pinkies, a scar on his left thumb, a cleft chin, wrinkled forehead, very bad teeth, hairy arms and chest, partial upper denture work. He's said to chain-smoke players' cigarettes, likes to heavily drink Molson Canadian beer, and likes to use the term turkeys to describe people. Howe is said to have a hearing impairment and could possibly be using a hearing aid today. He's described to have a fast shuffling gait and a loud, braying laugh. There is an incredible amount of detail describing this man's appearance and mannerisms. In an early note in Dennis's police file, it actually reads that it will only be a short while before this perpetrator is caught. But with so much information about a person to work with, how would anybody think otherwise? Born and raised in Regina, Saskatchewan, Dennis is believed to have been the son of a sex offender. He dropped out of high school in the ninth grade and spent much of his life committing crimes of robbery, assault, rape, and unlawful confinement. His criminal record begins at the age of 17, where he's convicted of a break-and-enter. Four years later, his record includes 15 similar convictions. And by 1965, his record doubled and was just getting worse. He was turning violent, raping a 13-year-old girl, and kidnapping a woman at knife point. In September of 1969, Howe was convicted of the attacks and sentenced to a Saskatchewan penitentiary in Prince Albert. In prison, he would work for the industrial cabinet shop, at the tailor shop, and practice his needlepoint, which is a form of embroidery. Stan Daniels, who was Dennis's boss for 10 years in the tailor shop, claims to have known him very well. Stan describes Dennis as an excellent mechanic who could fix anything. He could take entire sewing machines apart that were no longer working, fix them, and put them back together again. He's also described by Stan as extremely temperamental not to mention a loner who preferred to work by himself. Everyone in the prison unit knew not to go near Dennis when he was working. Stan Daniels always thought to himself that Dennis was such a waste of talent. You couldn't find a better mechanic with more knowledge than he did. He was also a qualified industrial projectionist for movie theaters. All of these skills leading to perfect jobs for a cash-only fugitive who prefers to work alone. Eight years after his sentencing, which would now be early 1977, Dennis takes advantage of a 48-hour pass from the penitentiary, where he steals a car, drives to Regina, which is a good three hours, 45 minutes away. His freedom would be short-lived, though, only a couple of months, in fact, because in April of that year, the monster was at it again. This time, he approaches a woman as she leaves a local drugstore. Dennis tells her that he needs someone to babysit his children so that he can go to work. The woman resisted his request, and he pulled out a knife and threatened to slit her throat. The woman immediately slumped to the ground and covered her head with her arms to protect herself. Howe makes out with $72 of the woman's money and flees. The woman said she would never forget his eyes. They reminded her of a wolf's eyes, cold and like a beast of prey. Howe was actually caught minutes after the altercation and sent back to prison in Prince Albert. Dennis Howe was paroled in 1982 and put under mandatory supervision. He was graciously given a job in a mill. However, Howe quickly fled to Toronto and his release was revoked because he left the area. Although it doesn't seem like they tried very hard to get him back in my opinion, but I digress. His four siblings, two brothers and two sisters, some of which are half-siblings, deny having anything to do with helping Dennis. His half-sister, Beverly McHenry, claims in an interview that she doesn't know where Dennis acquired his criminal tendencies. She states that they had lobbed him off the family tree decades ago. Until recently, in fact, her children weren't even aware that Dennis existed. She explains that her and Dennis were never close, that he was always getting himself into some kind of trouble. She also strangely mentions something about their brother Eugene giving Dennis some money, but she doesn't elaborate. Clayton Howe is Dennis's full brother, older by six years, and lived in Winnipeg at the time of Sharon's murder. He claims in an interview that he hasn't seen Dennis since the 60s, and he also states that police hadn't even attempted to contact him for 10 years after Dennis fled Toronto in January of 1983, just after Sharon's murder. He also mentions, just like Beverly, that Dennis contacted their other brother Eugene because Eugene helped Dennis with money to get to Toronto in the first place. He states that when Dennis arrived in Toronto, he acquired a job at a hosiery factory, He was known to work under the aliases Michael Burns, Wayne King, Ralph Ferguson, and Jim Myers, all very simple names. In 1967, Dennis is said to have divorced his wife, with whom they bore no children, although it is believed, however, that Dennis Howe fathers a daughter in 1969 from a common-law relationship. During the search for Howe, tips came flooding into the Toronto Police Homicide Squad. Dennis was tracked to Winnipeg, and then nothing. There were hundreds of sightings across North America, and all were reportedly followed up on. One of these tips would even lead police to exhuming a body in Sudbury in 1999, whose tombstone read Peter Sanderson, another very simple name that could very well have potentially been another one of Dennis's aliases. After testing the DNA of the exhumed body and comparing it to the wanted man, it turned out not to be Dennis Howe. Another event occurred when a dentist had a man in his chair for an appointment, This dentist was sure that he had the killer right there in front of him. The man had teeth that were almost as bad as Howe's. And unfortunately for that individual, he was also wanted by police, but once again, not actually Dennis. Investigators described Dennis Howe as a ghost, a monster, and a chameleon. The day after Sharon disappeared, Dennis was reported as being seen in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, a small town across the border from Michigan, approximately a a seven-and-a-half-hour drive away from Toronto. Witnesses report seeing how getting onto a bus there to Manitoba, where his brother Eugene lived. Dennis regularly was in contact with Eugene before the murder. If only police were able to identify Dennis sooner than a month, maybe they would have been closer on his tail. What is your opinion on police mishandling this case? It seems to be a hot topic of conversation on Web Sleuths. If you're into all the theories, you should really check that out. Police learn that Dennis's brother Eugene made approximately 12 trips to Montana and Washington State in the time following Dennis's escape. When police inquire as to why Eugene's traveling to these places, he would never make another trip to those states again. Why would Eugene suddenly stop traveling if he had nothing to hide? It seems to me like he got spooked. Unfortunately, we'll never know the answers to that because he would take any secrets he may have had regarding Dennis to the grave with him when he died in 2004. It's these kinds of clues that make me believe Dennis could possibly still be kicking around out there. In 2010, a retired homicide detective named Wayne Oldman reveals something that has never been released to the public before. Remember we talked about a photo of him where he's pulling Sharon's long brown coat out of a garbage bag in what looks to be Dennis's closet? Well, now he's sharing that a $1 bill was found left in one of those jacket pockets. The officers believe that Sharon was lured with the money. Linda states in an interview that there is no way Sharon would ever be coaxed with a simple dollar. She wasn't like that. She was very perceptive of people. She was smart. Linda said that Dennis had to have been really good at convincing Sharon to have her go off with him. There is speculation, also, that the $1 bill was actually placed in Sharon's coat pocket by Dennis after the murder to further degrade the little girl, much the same as if Dennis was paying a prostitute. Oh, and remember Doug Bapti, the witness that saw Sharon and Dennis leaving the park? In a 2010 interview with CBC, he reiterates what he saw that night. He said he witnessed Sharon talking to an unknown older man who was smoking, and then also witnessed her leaving the park with him. He said that the scenario looks strange, this older man talking to such a young girl, and now regrets not intervening. Hindsight is 2020. Honestly, though, it absolutely amazes me how many cases have witnesses in a similar scenario. If I saw an adult approach a young child and it made me feel any type of weird, I would 100% be obligated to intervene or at least stick my nose in someone else's business. Even if it turns out to be an explainable situation, no harm done. I'd rather look like a nut than kick myself later. But once again, this is the early 80s, a much different time than today. Doug additionally says that he reported all of this information to the police as soon as he learned Sharon was missing, and they didn't get back to him for three or four days. This is absolutely deplorable if it's true. We all know that time is crucial in finding missing persons, and he was spotted seven and a half hours away the next day. I, I, I just can't. I could go on about this forever. If you didn't before, now maybe do you think the police have mishandled this case? In 1988, 1994, and 2002, police released seldom seen photos of a lighter weight Dennis Howe as he may appear in his older age. Even with all of Dennis's aliases, he typically used the same birthday. CBC re-interviews Ollie, Dennis' drinking buddy from back at the rooming house. Ollie's older now. His hair is a short, shaved length, and gray, but almost white in color. He looks much different from his first interview back in 1983. Many people still believe that Ollie's hiding something. So the CBC reporter blatantly asks him in the recorded interview, Is there something you knew at the time of your original interview with police that you chose not to disclose? Ollie laughs and retorts, I don't know. The entire interview, he seems nervous with his arms crossed in a defensive-like stance, and he goes on to say to the reporter, as he's still nervously chuckling, Wow, you're really digging. That's the police's job, not your business. I don't know about you, but Ollie is suspicious as shit to me. You can watch the video online and let me know what you think. Maybe Ollie heard something that night going on in Dennis's housing unit, like the alleged immigrant family did. After all, the unit that he rented was right above Dennis's." Maybe Dennis told Ollie about his plans beforehand during a night of drinking. Perhaps Ollie saw Sharon and Dennis on their way to the housing unit. The list of possible scenarios are literally endless. As I was doing some more digging, I noticed something else that wasn't mentioned in any of the main articles regarding this case. It's a report that a taxi driver made in the area when he learned that Sharon was missing. It's alleged that he picked up Sharon and Dennis from the park on the afternoon that Sharon did go missing and took them to an unknown address. This address has never been released by the police to the public. If this is the case, surely the taxi driver didn't drive them to Dennis's rooming unit as they were only 100 meters away. There's literally no reason to hire transportation to get there. Did Dennis take Sharon somewhere else before they ended up back at the rooming unit? Could this be part of a clue as to why Sharon's body was frozen? On the other hand, the witness, Doug Bapti, doesn't mention anything about seeing Sharon and Dennis leaving in a cab, just that he saw them leaving together. But I guess it is possible that the pickup spot was just outside of Doug's view. In 2013, in a twist of events, an Idaho man named Robert James Miller was accused of being Dennis Howe. I must admit he does look a bit similar to the police's age enhancement photos of Dennis. He's known as a quirky appliance repairman who is an offbeat art collector claiming to own paintings by Rembrandt and Van Gogh. Miller was brought to the FBI's attention after two long posts that he made on a web forum called unsolvedcanada.ca. In these posts, he writes about his bizarre run-in with whom he believes was Dennis Howe. Not only did the two look similar, but they shared similar attributes. They were similar heights, they were both left-handed, both heavy smokers, and both worked on machines. They both seemed smart, but not well-educated. Robert claims that he hired a Canadian drifter from a homeless shelter in Boise, Idaho, to do odd jobs for him. This man went by the name of Tommy Ross, another simple name that fits the theme of Dennis's many other aliases. Miller and the homeless man became close friends. When Tommy called something a turkey, Miller began to put two and two together that his new friend might actually be Dennis Howe. He then claims that after reporting this to authorities— two investigators that he recognized from Sharon's case arrive and secretly and vengefully kill Dennis. They pick him up, they put him in a plane, and throw him out on the way back to Canada, left to be bear food. The internet was going wild with all the similarities between Howe and Miller, accusing Miller of actually being Dennis and attempting to throw investigators off with his wild story. With all of this publicity, police met with Miller took his photo, fingerprints, birth certificate, and his DNA. Everything was tested and cross-referenced, and it was confirmed that Robert Miller was not Dennis Howe. Miller also claims to still be in possession of Dennis's duffel bag. He claims that there's items in the bag that could prove that it was Dennis's by DNA, such as a toothbrush. However, no further information is released about such findings. Despite being on the run and evading police for 40 years to date, Numerous sightings have been reported to police and are all claimed to have been followed up on. But here's a sighting of Dennis Howe that I'm sure you've never heard before. It was 1983 in Toronto at Bargain Herald's in Rexdale Mall. My aunt was shopping on a Saturday afternoon with her three daughters, as they normally did. This mall is located at Rexdale and Islington Avenue, about a 23-minute drive from Jean Sybilis Square for reference. My late cousin Lydia, who we call Lil, was three at the time. She was notorious for venturing off on her own and ended up out of her mother's sight often. Her older sister, the middle sibling of the three, recalls that they had a meeting spot at the front of the mall, so if they were ever to get separated, they'd know exactly where to find one another. As my aunt notices Lil can't be seen, she makes her way to the meeting spot where she can see three-year-old Lil on her way to the front doors of the mall, heading toward a man outside who was motioning with both hands for her to come to him. My aunt's blood ran cold She'd seen that face hundreds of times, on billboards, on the news, and in the papers. And in the time of no cell phones, she didn't know what to do. She ran over and scooped up Lil, grabbed her other two daughters, and they left them all immediately. Fighting with herself in her own head all day, she spoke to my uncle when she finally arrived back home. She was looking for advice. What should she do? She felt silly calling in a tip that seemed like it would be too late to follow up on, And quite honestly, she didn't think the police would even take her seriously. Laying in bed, tossing and turning, the image of Sharon and the man that tried to lure her youngest daughter just couldn't escape her mind. She got up and she called the police. After explaining the situation over the phone, police confirmed that the man that she saw was very likely to have been Dennis Melvin Howe. They explained to my aunt that she wasn't the only one to have reported a sighting of Dennis on that same day and in the area of Rexdale Mall. Toronto Police Detective Stacey Gallant says that they are still looking for Dennis, dead or alive. They urge his nieces and nephews, and his potential daughter, to come forth with any information they may have. In my opinion, I think the police should sought these individuals out themselves if they have any questions or looking for new information. Dennis is among some of the most wanted men in Canadian history. This is a dangerous fugitive who has skill sets ranging from roofer to cook Store clerk, janitor, millwright worker, electrician, carpenter, and metal worker. A literal jack-of-all-trades. Once again, the perfect skill set would allow any individual to find a job quickly for cash. But has Dennis smartened up enough to stay out of trouble for all of these years? It seems unlikely with his criminal history that he could go so long without generating any negative attention in his direction. Could Dennis be dead? Dennis would be 83 years old today. It's entirely possible that this monster still walks the earth. I mean, the Golden State Killer pled guilty in his 70s, so I'm still hopeful that Dennis can be found. In a video interview, Linda walks the neighborhood streets up to the rooming house with reporters for the first time. She describes the exterior of the house as looking quite different from what it did in the 80s. She points to how close the park is from the location of the home. She explains that when she thinks about that time in her life... She vividly remembers not sleeping and a steady stream of police. She describes it as being held hostage in her own mind. She was just trying to survive during the search for her daughter. Linda and Brendan separated shortly after Sharon's murder, and then Brendan sadly passed away in 2017 from cancer without ever getting closure in regards to his daughter's murder. In one of the dozens of drawings that Linda shares of Sharon, there was one that gave me instant goosebumps. It read, quote, To my nice mother, I love my mother. I will always love her. I wish you a happy life. Love, Sharon. This case shattered lives then and continues to haunt people to this very day. If we continue to circulate the age-enhanced images and information about this case, just maybe we'll have some luck in finding Dennis, or maybe even someone willing to shed light on what may have happened to him. I'm certain there are some of you that have had experiences or sightings of Dennis from the 80s, and I really want to hear them. Please email me with the subject line Dennis, in all caps, at contactpsychosoup at gmail.com. I've also made it a lot easier for you to find my socials and my podcast in one place. If you click on my website, you'll have no issues finding me on whichever platform you most use. And don't forget, I'm always taking case suggestions, so find me to chat about your ideas. I hope you keep listening, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Psycho Soup. And remember, it's always a good time to listen to some true crime.